You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. As the bad news continues to roll in about American higher education, its devotion to ideologies, libertarian and Marxist, its loss of humanities program after humanities program, and now the terrible toll that COVID-19 is likely to take on its enrollment numbers, many of us have started looking outside the university for the future of the liberal arts. I'd like to think that's one of the goals of this podcast and the many others like it. And with that in mind, I'm happy to welcome Zena Hitz to the show today. She's a tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, and the author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. That book is out now from Princeton University Press, and I'm delighted it's brought her to Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thanks for coming on the show, Zena. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I love this book. I think pretty much everyone who's read it loves it. And part of what I loved about it was your honesty about your own life story. I know that we could spend the whole hour on autobiography, and I don't want to do that. But I do want to talk briefly about your disillusionment from the world of professional academia. Uh, what about university life turned you off, and how did you end up coming back to it? Well, uh, you know, I sometimes tell the story differently uh, every time I tell it. Uh, so it's kind of nice that there's a written record now, so I, I could be held to something. Um, I think there are a variety of things that, that led to my disillusionment with uh, being a, a research academic. I consider myself now a teaching academic, although I still do a little bit of research, um, but not much. Um, teaching has kind of become my focus. Uh, part of it was something in myself which I became infected with by the particular academic culture I was in, uh, which was sort of an elite competitive culture. I felt that I um, had lost touch with my original intellectual interest, that is, with learning, um, and instead had gotten sort of um, hooked on uh, first of all, a certain kind of success, a certain kind of approval, positive reactions, um, publications in the right journal, comments uh, from the right people. Uh, that had kind of skewed my vision um, and, and my values, I think, in a lot of ways. And I also think that that, uh, and it's interesting to me because I was pretty successful. So it wasn't as if I was being beaten down by the stick of failure. It was more like I was being corrupted by the carrot of success. I, I felt that I was no longer thinking freely. Um, you know, I, I was uh, fearful about just um, writing what I wanted to write about as opposed to uh, what I thought I needed to do for the sake of my career. So in other words, it, it felt to be at war a bit with my basic human intellectual interest that was a big part of it and the second part of it was i i i started being quite unhappy with the quality of the teaching i was doing not that it, not because i wasn't trying but because i felt the institutions which were or, ordinary even good institutions there's i don't mean to attack any particular institution but they were they were not making it easy for me to pass on to my students the kinds of habits of mind and habits of reading, habits of thinking, habits of pondering that I wanted to pass on. And I kept trying different things and nothing worked. And so finally I, I got fed up and I, 
I um, I quit the profession for a time, uh, and then I came back uh, after some time in a Catholic religious community in Canada because I realized that um, this I, I had been thinking in my time away about how much. Uh, having gone to a small liberal arts college mattered to me, how much that kind of personal care of my teachers mattered, how, how that kind of broad humanistic approach mattered. Um, and I, uh, so I realized, I think that I, that I could be happy if I was in an environment like that. Um, so I, I came back, applied to my old college and they fortunately had a job for me. Um, and, uh, that's where I've been ever since that was five years ago. I, I, just a, a personal question. When you left academia to go live in that community in Canada, did you have a sense you'd be back or did you feel like you were shutting the door on it forever? Uh, I definitely, so officially, um, as is standard in Catholic religious communities, you don't make a permanent commitment for some time. It's You commit in stages. So when I initially left, I left for six. I went on six months leave as a as a guest in the community uh, to sort of discern. Then I made a commitment for two years, a two year formation, and at which point I resigned from my job. Um, and that formation was something that you undertook when you were thinking of uh, joining the community permanently. And when I went up to begin with, I thought. I'm doing this because I think it might be a permanent change. So I handled it as if it were a permanent change. That is, I said goodbye to people. Uh, you know, I didn't uh, give away everything I owned. I kept some things back in case I decided to leave. But uh, I definitely treated it, took it very seriously as a possible permanent life change. Uh, so it was dramatic in that way. Yeah, yeah. It, it felt like dying in, in a certain way, <laughs> you know, just saying goodbye to people, packing up stuff and not knowing, not knowing when you were going to see or when you're going to be able to see or do things you'd been habituated to again. Right, right. And I mean, I, I have a, a similar story that's that's different in the sense that I did not join a religious community, but I left <laughs> academia and it I, it really does feel kind of like dying because you have yeah. this vision of yourself. Do, academia is not just a job, right? It's a calling. And when you turn your back on it, it, it must feel kind of like what leaving a monastery feels like. You're, you thought you were this person and you're not anymore. Uh, yeah, I think that was a lot of it. I mean, I, I think um, I was leaving in a way everything I knew about myself. I had dedicated my whole life to being an academic. Uh -huh. I'd been in school my whole life. Never not been in school. I'd never been defined by something other than my academic abilities, really. So um, I think that was part of why I was so unhappy. That is, I think that's a pretty unhealthy way of being an academic and not, not necessary. Not everyone's like that. Um, but it was very dramatic that way. Yeah, it did feel like, like dying. And it, it felt a, a lot of what I think the pain of those moments were were not substantive like that. That is, it wasn't, I'm leaving this thing I thought was my vacation. It was more, um, what will people think of me? Everyone's going to think I'm crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, my teachers are going to, you know, uh, despise me. think I've let them down. My friends are going to be irritated. You know, what if I, what I, I need to get out this last article, this last mm -hmm. book, last thing to prove you know, that I'm not doing this out of failure. 
so all these kinds of things were much more preoccupying um, and uh, and much more, I think, immediately painful than the, than the deeper thing. I think I knew, in other words, that I needed to do something non-academic. I needed to do that, and I was right. I needed to do it. Um, so I think what was harder was the uh, yeah the social social competitive aspects of it. And you 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 left one kind of very specific kind of community, and then moved to a very different sort of community <laughs> where people didn't value you for the things that you were accustomed to being valued for. Is that is that an accurate way to say that? That's accurate. Yeah, you mean the community? Yeah, no. Um, they valued me instead because I was just a human being, you know, right. <laughs> you know, which was really tough. You know, I don't know if anyone's ever tried to value like that, but it doesn't always feel good. You really prefer your conditional value that you've earned or that you feel you've earned uh, to just um, being valued uh, as in your humanity. Uh, it's it's I think one of the truth, one of the hardest things about actually that teachings of the gospel is that you know you're you're supposed to be like a little child that means that you're valued because your your humanity of your simplicity your joy um not because you're smarter than everyone else uh, that's very hard especially for people with intellectual bent who are often very competitive by nature as i certainly am I feel like maybe people don't understand just how ego-driven academia is and how um, how destructive it, it can be for the souls of the people who were caught in it. I wrote an article when I left, and I, I, I talked about um, how I, I wanted to be a rock star for most of my teens and 20s. And academia is really the same... <laughs> the, the same sort of thing, right? It's it's I want to be adored um, either by the students or by my peers who are reading my articles. But of course, I mean, the, the game in academic publishing is nobody's reading your articles ever. <laughs> um, it, it really I, I don't I'm not I'm certainly not going to go so far as to say it's always unhealthy or it's inherently unhealthy. But my goodness, is it unhealthy for a lot of people, including me? I think that it, that's really true, and I think it's an important insight because I do I have known some academics over the years who were balanced, um, able to live an academic life without uh, losing themselves in that way, um, able to be human and kind, and to recognize the value of their work for what it was, which was something good, but not everything in the world. But I think. That um, honestly, uh, sort of wounded people are attracted to academia. People who, um, in a way, the Neapolitan novels, if you've read them, I talk about those in my book. Um, that kind of example, I think, is pretty common. That is, someone comes from a background that they want to get away from. And one of the tickets to social mobility is doing well in school, getting out of your local community, getting away from the people who you feel like never appreciated you. And that leaves you a little bit unmoored, I think. And then you've got no protection from this hyper-competitive, hyper-status-driven stuff that you're exposed to. That's, that's anyway how I would describe my experience. Um, that you know, I I just I just didn't have enough from where I came from to to defend against this. Uh, and um, and that I think is often what attracts people to academia. It feels like a new world. Uh, a place of escape, a place where you can be someone different. 
probably similar to performing. You're probably right. I mean, I don't know. I don't know any rock stars personally, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but there is also like that, that is you, you, you feel like you've moved into this different world where, where no one, no one, you can hide behind an image and no one needs to know who you really were or where you came from anymore. But I mean, also I, I, I've had both experiences. I mean, I, I was in a band in college. It was never very successful, but <laughs> we, we played shows and I, I remember what it feel, felt, feel, feel like what it yeah. felt like to have all the attention in the room fixated upon us and, and us doing something good, you know, kind of working yeah, together yeah. and making this thing. And it really is very much what it feels like to run a successful discussion class. Not every class, right? Maybe maybe right. once or twice a semester. But I, right. I would leave feeling that same high. It was really a good feeling and um, not necessarily a bad one, right? But oh, um, no, no, there's, I think part of what makes it tragic and part of why I wanted to write about it is that intellectual life is actually really good and really important. So academic life has, as its central practice in some way, this really core human activity, like making music or uh, or similar. Um, and so you have these moments of real contact with something good that really matters. And then you also have these moments where that you that you you get kind of caught up in uh, something that's more like peer performance um, and sometimes it's mixed together I mean I have these memories these are sort of the memories I have of being uh, you know <laughs> the closest equivalent this can sound so pathetic to any real rock star but uh, rock star moment um, you know you being in the back of the room at a talk and if you've got the in philosophy, if you've got the counterexample, that's just, <laughs> you know, you're, you are the queen, you know, you have won the session. Um, and, you know, this it's like, I've never smoked crack, but I imagine it's like that. Um, it just feels amazing. And in a way, you've done something good. I mean, you're part of a conversation. It's not that you've necessarily done something bad by doing it. It's that your motivations get so mixed up um, that that you, you you can get disoriented, I think, and lose your way. It must be hard to be a saint and be very successful. Uh, I think so. Yes, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but I think that's true. Yeah. Uh, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Right, so, right. Um, there's a reason for that. Uh, and that's because uh, success makes us think we're more than human. You know, it, mm -hmm. there's something in us that wants to take credit for it and that doesn't want to see it as something which like everything else is given to us. Um, and so it's, it's yeah, it's very easy to, to uh, lose your orientation. Well, I wanted to begin with the autobiography because um, I, I wanted our listeners to understand that this is not a book about academia. It, it's a book that separates the what you call the intellectual life from the academic life, which of course very few people and um, increasingly fewer will ever um, will ever actually get. Uh, and so much of this book is a defense of what we might call useless learning or, or less controversially learning for its own sake. I, I think that is a particularly hard sell in contemporary American society because it's pragmatic, really to the point of psychopathy a lot of times. Yeah. But what, I, what I wonder is, was it ever not a hard sell? Was there some era in human history where the life of the mind flourished? <laughs> I think that's a great question. So I, I actually do think, um, 
now you're making me think a little harder about this. Uh, I have a kind of stock answer, which maybe I need to think harder about it. Maybe it's not quite right. You know, there, there was, I think, a kind of golden age of liberal arts or theoretical study um, beginning late 19th, going into the, the mid 20th century. Um, and it had a variety of um, social manifestations. There were uh, working class intellectual programs. This is when all the novels are being translated into other languages. It's the age of the cheap paperback, uh, the cheap uh, uh, marketable edition. Uh, huge growth in literacy, and then, you know, into even the 50s, 60s, 70s in the U.S., I think. Because mm -hmm. of the GI uh, Bill in part, right? GI Bill, and, and there's just money just pouring into the universities, and um, a certain life is, you know, it's cost of living is very cheap. I was reading, in preparing for the, when I was writing the book, I, one of the things I read was uh, Steve Martin, the comedian's autobiography, uh, Born Standing Up, which is terrific. I recommend it. But he talks about being a philosophy major in, I think it's the late 60s. Um, and th they live this kind of idle life, uh, these young people. I mean, they just don't seem to have any constraints on them. They can uh, work on and off and go to a little bit of school and be an artist and that, that, that there's something that's changed in the economic environment, I think, significantly. That's part of what's gone on. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't know what else. But I, so I, I do think the reason why I wanted to rethink that, that would be my stock answer would be to say, well, we did. The reason why my book is getting any purchase is because people remember this. Um, we still have this in our cultural DNA. It wasn't that long ago. Um, where we thought of the humanities of the liberal arts as being worth studying for their own sake. What makes me hesitate is, of course, we had actually a different set of utilitarian justifications, too, in those days. Sure, so yeah. it was very much, po especially post-war, you know, it was, it was um, uh, you know, this is going to keep us from becoming the Nazis if we do the humanities. We're going to become democratic citizens. Which a, a really bizarre point of view, given how culturally dominant Germany was. I know, I know. It is bizarre. Although, and I think for a long time I thought, this is just crazy. Look at Germany. You know, they, they were better than us in every way in these respects, in music and in art and in scholarship. And look what happened to them. Uh, I have wondered whether um, part of the, at least goes a lot, I don't, I haven't diagnosed it yet, but something in our current moment, there's both a kind of real low point for humanistic study, study for its own sake, and also a real low point for egalitarianism and democracy. So it, it does feel to me like a very oligarchic time. Um, and you know, there's a few people who are much, much richer than anyone else. They have much more political power than anyone else. They dictate the way things go for everyone else. That's much more true than it was when I was younger. Uh, mm -hmm. And I wonder how these things interact. I don't know. I wouldn't be naive enough to say that the decline in education caused the political change. I think it would be more likely the other way around. Um, but it does disturb me. And it, it has made me actually question a bit. 
uh, of the, the pure uselessness of, of the humanities. I think, I think they actually probably have some uses, <laughs> some, even some political uses, even though I, I understand why I went in the book. And what's interesting, you bring up the the kind of oligarchy because so often the uh, the sort of education that you provide at St. John's, the sort of the sort of intellectualism that you're promoting in this book, so often it gets called elitist, as in it's just for it's just for people who have the uh, have the the time to or time and money to devote to it. And and one of the things I really enjoyed about this book is it is peppered with quotes from these. Um, I think late 19th century, early 20th century working class British people who had their lives changed by reading literature and philosophy and the, and the kind of Matthew Arnold program. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that's so important. And I, I think it's really weird that somehow this fact has been dropped out of cultural memory. Um, so it's true that, you know, in, among the ancient Greeks, which is something I study, you know, it's my specialty. Um, you would uh, you would think of intellectual life as being for the few, the rich, the smart, um, the male people that male, maybe the people um, biological mix, you know, and lived in the right climate. Uh, so you do have you do have that. It's very traditional. It's very inbuilt, but. Uh, this whole moment that begins, I think, early 19th century, maybe late 18th, um, where uh, working people decided that they wanted the benefits of the elite education and they took it for themselves. Uh, now, there was some middle class outreach, some aristocratic outreach, some philanthropy involved, but a lot of it was really grassroots. And you see that not just in the British uh, tradition, which th there's this wonderful book about, you know, the intellectual life of the British working classes, but you also see it in, in the U.S., in the Black American tradition, that is mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass uh, or Du Bois or uh, Malcolm X or uh, even Huey Newton, uh, you know, all of these people, James Baldwin, they formed themselves on great books, that is to say they weren't sort of passive recipients of some, you know, white rich person's education, these books are sufficiently rich and deep and their questions sufficiently human and profound that they were able to make themselves into free people from the books, you know, uh, and into their own people. Uh, and uh, I think that that kind of story is not being told anymore. Um, and I'm trying to retell it in the hopes of saving something from the wreckage, because I, I think it's a crucial part of the history of education in in uh, in the U.S. and and in parts of Europe, um, that that it was uh, a vehicle of liberation for people who otherwise really had nothing. And that's the opposite of being elite. Uh, mm -hmm. It's 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 something different. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's. It's a, a force of equality, a force of democracy, force of freedom, force of unity, uh, all the things that I think most of us want. And it seems to me that that's exactly the conception of education that's under debate right now. There's a certain sort of academic who argues that there is no such thing as universal humanity. And so literature and philosophy in particular get reduced to exercises of power 
among factions and identities. Do you have any real hope that the universalist model is going to be able to endure that attack? Because I'm not sure I do anymore. Well, uh, it depends on what you mean, I guess, by endure the attack. Uh, you know, will is my book going to persuade everyone who thinks otherwise? No, it's not. Um, or similar books. Will there be a mass persuasion? I don't think so. Um, but I do have hope that um, these, uh, you know, well, I suppose we could think of it this way. Um, part of what I think might be going on, part of why it seems plausible that there's no such thing as universality and educating is a matter of imposing um, the, po the powerful people imposing their views on the non-powerful. Part of that is because our education is not particularly well structured anymore. So, you know, you've got sort of 300 people packed into a lecture hall listening to one person. Now, that is not a liberating experience. Now, a lecture can be great. I'm not against every lecture. But if that's your primary form of education, and if you're quizzed on what the professor thinks, um, there is a kind of um, unhealthy power dynamic in that kind of structure. You know, you have to ask yourself as a teacher, as a professor, um, am I making it possible for my students to become like me? Uh, or am I just um, chewing some stuff up that they can digest and moving on and, you know, those few, the true, the good might find their way into grad school and become as smart as me someday. But I think that kind of thing is really exacerbated, for instance, with a lot of online education. Oh, yeah. You know, where you have the modules that are designed by the experts who have all had personal mentoring in research universities. <laughs> and they design the online modules, they design the online education, and they decide what counts as education and other people don't. So I, I wonder whether in this current moment where everything is kind of in free fall in education, I think across the board, I wonder if we might start to see some different models. And then I think you might start to see a wedge for something like universality uh, once once things get bad enough. I don't know the future, you, what the future looks like. I don't know whether we're gonna have um, you know, a, a university that even has ideas in it anymore. Is it all going to be job training? I don't know. Um, but I do think that uh, there's a lot of people who, I think really most people, if they encounter the real thing, serious reading based on fundamental human questions, they're, they're drawn in, they're attracted by it, they learn from it, they grow from it. And uh, the more that we can get the practice out there for people to experience it, the better will be the fate of, of that way of thinking. Um, but, but how is it all going to turn out? I couldn't tell you. Could be, could be very marginal for a long time. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's as it should be. I mean, maybe, maybe the, the marginal aspect of it is what, um, is what sustains it. I mean, maybe, maybe in being official doctrine, as it were, uh, it, we, we lose something well, that's certainly true rhetorically. I mean, I think if you look at one of the recent 
critiques of mid-century humanism I was reading. This is Mark Greif, who's, you know, uh, written wonderful essays, which struck me actually as humanist essays. So I don't know why he's gone so hard against humanism, but, um, you know, he'll say, oh, yes, you know, these mid-century writers, well, they're, they're talking about, quote unquote, the nature of man, but they're writing in a time of segregation. They're writing in a time of, um, you know, imperialist wars. And so they're not really living it out. Um, so I think that anything mainstream ends up getting all the vices of whatever's going on attached to it. You don't see it quite so clearly for what it is. Um, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, there's certainly benefits to being on the margins. You don't give me less institutional, more free, more flexible, more responsive. Um, uh, but of course, you know, you want more people to have the good things. So it's, yeah bit of a paradox you don't want to be too happy on the margins <laughs> like, uh so yeah it's it's, it's difficulty have you read walker percy's essay the loss of the creature i have not actually no i've never read walker percy this is a you i found a hole in my uh yeah erudition uh, I, I i happen to think percy's a better years, thinker than he is a novelist i don't i don't think he was very good at doing the things that make novels good but his essay, Loss yeah. of the Creature, is interesting because he talks about how the very worst place to read Shakespeare is in a Shakespeare class. And the very worst place to dissect a dogfish is in a science class, right? Because yeah. you have this like apparatus surrounding you that keeps you from seeing the thing, the creature. So he says the best thing that could happen, the best way to encounter Shakespeare is for the end of the world to happen. And you just kind of stumble across him in, a, in the ruins of a library, <laughs> like in that like in that Twilight Zone episode, except your glasses work. Um, but but failing that, he says, what we ought to do is on random days, your science class should be interrupted by somebody coming in and making you read Shakespeare. And your Shakespeare, your literature class should be interrupted by you having to dissect a dogfish every so often. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that you say that. I would love to read that because I think it is, in a way, a description of something like the St. John's pedagogy. Well, that's that what is. I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, that, because we, we we really make this effort, which sometimes looks ridiculous, especially to, but to anyone, really. We really make this effort to take agendas out of the classroom, you know, to let them be free and spontaneous and let them, um, we try to make mysterious exactly what we're doing. You know, we have we don't have science. We have something called laboratory. Uh, we don't name our subjects in the same way other places do. I think we're partly trying to get that effect where um, the object of inquiry becomes something fresh uh, and something that you can look at with new eyes and um, ask questions about. And, you know, your questions will feel more real to you um, if if they come from your own encounter with the object than they will if um there's someone sitting in the front of the room saying, okay, so for the final, I want you to know, right. you know, blah, 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 point one, point two, that's 50%. And then that just kind of deadens you to, to, uh, real spontaneous thinking. Lionel um, Trilling has that great line about how he assigned all this modern literature and the students, he says, they, they looked into the abyss and the looked, the abyss looked back and said, Aren't I fascinating and an, <laughs> and an interesting object of study? <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true. Uh, so yeah, how do how to somehow 
get learning for its own sake to as many people as possible without its losing its uh, spontaneity and its freshness and its authenticity and its um, or origins in each person. That's a, it's a tall order. It's very, very difficult uh, to figure out how that would happen. Yeah, mm -hmm. and well, especially since the institutional forces of the university, and again, we're not limited to the university, but the university is where people generally first encounter this kind of deep reading. It's where I first encountered it. The, the, the whole institution of the university seems to be dead set against this and, and in favor of a variety of other things that are not this. I I also think it partly, it, this just occurred to me, but it partly explains why I have some stories like this in my book, the stories of the, um, you know, the sort of romantic era of science, so the, the early 19th century, mm -hmm. so good and plants, and it's also when Darwin is beginning to work, um, and uh, the Herschels, who are these uh, German emigres to England who end up becoming great astronomers, there's something so fresh about these stories because they're not, quote unquote, becoming scientists. They're just trying to figure stuff, you know, they're just trying to figure something out, you know. So, so you know, Darwin's sort of in his yard, you know, collecting bugs and like organizing rocks and throwing together chemicals for experiments. And I think he sort of takes that experience from his childhood and takes it out into the world and just looks at stuff. And it's very fresh and it's very exciting. Whereas, you know, evolutionary biology 540, I think, takes more effort to see that as something really fresh and exciting and something that could be um, a source of mystery and wonder and uh, growth and uh, really just worth throwing, throwing everything you have into. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the science and these, these stories of kind of amateur scientists um, because it's it's hard for me to imagine in the 21st century that that sort of amateur scientist can really exist anymore because it, I, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not even an amateur scientist. But I would think that most of the things that have been discovered without you needing an expensive lab to do it have pretty much already been discovered. So is there a, is there a way to kind of be that gentleman or, or lady uh, scientist that we saw in the 18th and 19th centuries? I think what might be very difficult would be to have that basic human encounter with nature and all of your curiosity about it and your hard thinking about it and, you know, the building of your own tools. It would be hard for that to end up producing cutting edge science that's going to persuade current scientists of something that they didn't already know. That's very, very hard to imagine. I don't know if it's impossible or not. Again, I don't know much science myself. But I think one of the reasons why I wanted those stories there is that there is something else available. Um, and, and the example who I think of the book that's closest to that is someone like John Baker, who's this Essex office worker who becomes obsessed with peregrine falcons. You know, he doesn't he doesn't go to college. He's you know, he reads poetry as a young man. I <laughs> uh, loves poetry, loves literature. And he starts to look at birds and becomes really preoccupied with them. Now, does he make discoveries about peregrine falcons? I don't know. I think the, the uh, ornithologists are actually a little doubtful that he even saw what he saw, but he integrates his experience of the birds into a kind of reflection on what it means to be a human being, what it means to be in nature, what it means to try to understand uh, another living creature. 
Um, whether you can ever get out of your humanity and really try to get a sense of what it's like to be a different kind of a creature, uh, that kind of thing, I think, will never get old and will never be overdone, um, where you, you encounter nature thoughtfully and observantly and carefully uh, as a human endeavor, as a way of reflecting on the kind of thing that you are as a human being and uh, what kind of thing nature is. And uh, that, that, I think, does not go away. And there may well be... Um, there may well be things left to discover, especially, uh, to be honest, I think historical things can still be discovered. Mm -hmm. So you, there may still be something like a dinosaur in someone's backyard field, and uh, there may still be stone, ancient stone anchors at the bottom of some lake that someone hasn't yet pulled up. Uh, that kind of thing, I think, is a little easier to imagine an amateur finding something that was truly something new to humanity. Or Bigfoot. <laughs> like the, you know, the mystery of the Loch Ness monster has never been solved. <laughs> and, uh, we need to think about that, you know. And and I, I'll tell you what, since you know, since we're on the air, I'll tell you, I think it's Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so no, there, yeah. So there's, um, you never know. Uh, but uh, I, I think we lose something if the only worth of learning is somehow to make uh, a contribution to a kind of data collection set uh, that's set by the world. Mm -hmm. um, you lose something as far as the data is concerned because data is not really worth anything unless it contributes to someone understanding something. Uh, and you also just lose this human activity of, of really serious reflection on, on uh, yeah, what's out there in the world. Uh, and 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 what our role in is is in it, and uh, what it means to be a human being. That that's the kind of activity I think that, that, that can't get old, can't get out of date. Um, you know, is is never made obsolete. Um, what sorts of uh, activities would you exclude from the realm of contemplation? You know, that's a good question. I um. I say something a bit about this in my preface. What I say is I think, let me just re-say it and see whether I still think it's true and you, and you can come back at me if it doesn't seem true to you. What I say is that in principle, anything could be an object of contemplation. So you could contemplate while you were doing anything, while you were playing video games, while you were reading pot-boiler pot novels, while you were watching an NFL game, all kinds of things could, could become contemplative. Uh, but what I say is that there are certain kinds of activities that are more conducive than others, um, that requires sort of less discipline than the others, where you're not working against the tendency of your own activity. So, for instance, so I, uh, you know, I'm a pretty significant, for all my attacks on the Internet in the book, I'm a pretty significant Internet addict. I'm addicted to the news. Um, I'm a social media hound. I, you know, it's it's a, it's a weakness. It makes me miserable, but I can't stop it. Um, it would be very hard for me to contemplatively approach something like Twitter uh, as a kind of um, dis uh, display of human nature in some way as as the human being at work. 
be hard because I would get sucked into it. It's just not what I, it's not what it's designed for. And they've got all these smart people trying to figure out how to suck me in to stay on it and never leave. And I, it's hard for me to resist that. So I, I guess I do, I think I still do think that. So I think that there are certain activities, being in nature, observing nature, uh, reading books, especially old books, especially difficult books. Um, you know, I think people watching is actually a pretty uh, rich activity, uh, contemplatively speaking. Uh, it can seem casual, it can seem silly, but you can learn a lot just by seeing how people move and interact in a public space. Um, so anyway, these are just some examples of the kinds of things that I think really uh, nurture contemplation, silence, solitude, reading, study, uh, time in nature, um, mathematical disciplines, um, these kinds of things I think work and I think activities which might otherwise be compulsive um, or which have something else in them that's attractive, that's going to be harder. It's going to be harder to be contemplative in those modes. It, it seems to me that we are very good at self-justification. And so there, there's, a, there's a way if, if we know that we're being led down the garden path by something, by a video game or by Twitter or by whatever. The, the so many of the examples are electronic, and I think that's interesting. But yeah. if, if we feel we're being, we can justify ourselves by saying, oh, you know, I'm studying this. Where, in fact, I mean, for the most part, we know we're not, right? We, we know that right. the, the hours we waste on Twitter, and I'm as bad as you, uh, is... <laughs> Are, are not hours spent in contemplation. I, I, you know, I suspect there is a way to do video games contemplatively. I know that when I play video games, that has not been my experience. So well, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in the way that this is malleable, but it's not infinitely malleable. Right, I, that's the way that we're put together. Uh, and I, I've gotten actually some pushback about video games, more pushback than on anything else. <laughs> it's hard stuff. So I, I'm told that, you know, I'm thinking of older video games. You know, I'm back in the, the 80s and the 90s when my brother and I would go to the arcade and um, play Pac-Man or whatever. It's not like that anymore. They're very sophisticated. They're very interesting. Um, I can believe it. Um, but it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's not about the particular details of where the divide is. It's about... The fact that there is a divide, that is, there are just certain activities that are wholesome and certain ones that uh, that aren't. I mean, I, I think I also say this in the book, right, manual work with your hands is um, very contemplative. Now, that's very counter to traditional teaching, but I think it's true. I think uh, unless you're really doing something extremely difficult or extremely painful, if you're, you know, chopping wood or washing dishes or gardening or um, building something, you can, your mind can be, if you know what you're doing, your mind can be more or less free to think about things. And that's another kind of thing, which I think, um, you know, people know this, you know, I'm Matthew Crawford, and I was written more than one book about this kind of thing, but uh, it's worth saying again, just to remind us that um, electronic stuff is not really that good for us. Yeah, uh, but please continue listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from podcasts, podcasts are different. They're very special. They're <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know that they are. Good people. Uh, <laughs> so, You're smarter so. just for listening to them. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. I, I wonder to to what degree I'm just making demands on people's attention. 
I don't know. I'm actually not a, it's funny. I've now been on a number of podcasts. I've, I've never been a listener to podcasts. So I, I can't, I won't diagnose what I haven't had much experience with. Uh, it feels like something like reading, right? Um, it's not unlike it. Um, somewhere between reading and uh, distracting oneself. Uh, I don't know. Um, depends maybe on the, I don't know. Yeah. Interesting question. Well, you know, when I when I was a professor, I I didn't listen to nearly as many just because I worked with words all day and I couldn't listen to them while I worked. But I do things now that don't have anything to do with words, and it's it's actually very possible to sit and listen to podcasts all day and kind of pay attention to seventy five percent of them. I, I don't know if that's good or bad. I, I think there, that does something to your your powers of concentration, contemplation that maybe I'm not ready to examine in myself yet, but. <laughs> There's that there's that talent for self-justification. Well, it's also true. This is part of my Twitter paradox, right? So, uh, um, you know, I'm on Twitter. I got on Twitter mainly to promote my book about contemplation and about leaving behind the Internet. So how am I going to reach people, you know, to get them to read this book except through Twitter? You know, how are you going to reach people to get them to think about um, you know, humanism and the faith and stuff like that, except through a podcast, you've got to, so this, these are the vehicles we have. I don't think that's too much rationalizing. I think it's actually true that we have to use the vehicles we have to, to, um, even communicate what might be bad about them. <laughs> so it's right. Just, so that's just the way things are. Yeah, I occasionally take these like technophobic stances on this podcast, um, not unaware of the irony. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, I'm definitely painfully aware of the irony of my uh, relentlessly promoting contemplation on Twitter. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the best you can say for Twitter is it's not as poisonous as Facebook. Like, I, 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 I guess right. yeah. it's a different well, kind I, of poison, maybe. Uh, I think the difference is that you for me is that I don't really know the people mm. uh, on Twitter. So it's Which easier not it to be angry at them. It's easier not to be angry. Easier just to get rid of them. You don't have to follow them if they're bothering you. Um, whereas what I found really difficult about Facebook, and I, I left Facebook and I think I'll never return, is um, seeing people that I really cared about behave badly uh -huh. and, and not being able to stop myself. I can't get rid of them. You know, I can't un, I can't defriend them. I can't. So it's uh, it's that I found really excruciating. Um, whereas uh, Twitter, it's it's more um, more of a free for all, which makes it worse sometimes, but also better in a certain way. You can curate yourself more easily. I've been trying the last few weeks to unfollow anybody who expects me to be outraged at things because I feel like I I spend like everybody else, I spend <laughs> twenty hours a day angry at something. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, this I think is really sinister, and it connects. If I can make it a little more serious, back to the earlier thing about oligarchy. I mean, I I think one of the spells that I try to tell myself to 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 free myself from the lure of the sirens is, you know, the, the people get very rich off of our anger. That's right. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's it's in uh, the interest of a very few people. For us to be always online, always angry, always looking for something else to be angry about. Um, and it's in our interest for us to be lonely and bored and restless. Um, and this is, I think, part of what is sinister about the current moment is that uh, our economy is not just not 
it's not just not helping us be more human. It's, it's actively really working against us. And, uh, you know, in the long term, however addicted we are to this or that, uh, I think we all have to have in the back of our minds, at least, um, you know, we've got to be looking out for opportunities to, to, to do something different and, and live different lifestyles that, uh, are going to be more human and more rich and more full and, uh, more flourishing. Um, I just think that's really important and that, you know, I'm not saying it as a problem that's been solved in my life or in, uh, lives of most people I know, but I, I do know that that's, what we've got to be working towards is, you know, get, we've got to get out of this somehow, this particular moment that we're in. Well, I'm glad you brought it up as, as a function of the economy, because, you know, the, the economy is taking this huge hit right now, but it seems to me that the parts of it that are taking the hardest hit are the parts that make us human. And yeah, so, so the things that are flourishing in this terrible economic moment are the the very things that are destroying us. So things are getting worse rather than better. So even though even the revolution that you see happening because of the coronavirus um, is a is a revolution against humanity, not from humanity. No, I think it's it's very disturbing, uh, and I I have been uh, very disturbed by that prospect I'll have the past few months. Uh, that very quickly. The situation, which was already bad, became extremely bad. And um, you know, if 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 we're not careful, if our leaders aren't careful, it'll it could get worse um, and less human. And I think the note of hope in that, and that I think is something we've seen recently too, is uh, it's so extreme that it can generate a kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. So we may be seeing, this is my hope anyway, more um, back to the land kind of things, mm-hmm. more community living, more simplicity. You know, if in a way um, having fewer opportunities can be, can make it easier to walk away from lifestyles that maybe weren't that great for us anyway. Um, that, I, I think there's reason to hope for all of that. So, you know, um, it's also yeah it's a time to 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 think about alternatives to current institutions since the current institutions it seems like across the board are functioning so badly uh, that that you can't you can barely pretend anymore that they're working you know i mean how are you going to pretend that the schools are work you can pretend the schools are working when your kids are just going and they're not learning anything but can you pretend they're working when they're only going two days a week and the rest of the time they're home with you and you're working from home and I don't think that's going to work, right? So, so something, some stuff's got to give in some places. Um, Do you think that the Black Lives Matter protests are a swing back in the other direction? That that's a that's a push back towards something more fundamentally human, something more connected with dignity, which is a concept that comes up in this book. Uh, I feel like it's actually has the same doubleness of the rest of the coronavirus. I think part of it really is something human. Um, something anti-institutional, something that really wants to build a different uh, way of interacting in community. I think you see that to some extent in the, um, you know, defund the police kind of thing. It's people want people want to live in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're ready, or they feel that they're ready for um, you know real changes in our lifestyle. 
But I think the other end of it is unfortunately moving in the other direction. And I'm concerned that the other end of it is more powerful, which is um, instead of uh, building communities, what you're doing is um, finding central management and making sure central management does what you want them to do. Mm-hmm. When you do that, you're strengthening central management. You're not strengthening yourself. <laughs> you know, so a lot of the, you know, central control administrators, uh, CEOs, et cetera, these people that are producing these kind of performative statements of support, uh, that's that's very worrying because they, they get more power from people thinking that what they say is important rather than just people doing whatever's in their power in their world to build something that's different. Um, so I, that that part of it worries me, and that part I think strengthens the oligarchic uh, character of the time. Mm-hmm. I hope that the first part is the part that has the purchase, but I'm concerned uh, about the second. Everything eventually gets swallowed by that corporate machine, to mix my metaphors. I guess machines don't swallow things. (laughs) They do sometimes. (laughs) Like the garbage disposal. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. The corporate garbage disposal. Except it's not garbage. It's the good things that are getting. We've dropped our wedding rings down the garbage disposal. (laughs) (laughs) now we've got some real good images going in here uh that's right um it's it's very insidious that um the powers that be have gotten very very good at co-opting these movements and refocusing them to be about themselves and taking them away from things that matter i mean there's something you see i'm sure you see this in your travels on twitter right there's become a kind of a theme of like well thanks for signing this letter you know, doing X, Y, and Z, and thanks for firing this person who does this voice on this cartoon, but actually what we wanted was to hold those police officers accountable for what they did. Right, right. (laughs) So so there is, that I think is encouraging that people, there's a resistance. It's like, no, we wanted concrete results. We wanted... Oh, but if Apu's not in The Simpsons anymore, now we, (laughs) now we finally made real change. (laughs) Exactly. So it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I think we, we could do better at being more insistent on uh, local concrete change that makes a real difference in real people's lives uh, and really try to break away from these performances, um, which I think just they, they, in a way they kind of discredit. They have a corrupting effect, like they make the the moral imperative that I think has been displayed to us less clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the tragedy. Uh, we have to find a way to fight that. Well, while we're, while we're talking about the kind of evils of uh, Corona tide, as some people on Twitter call it, yeah. Yeah. A, a number of your other models of contemplation um, are people like Andre Vey and Malcolm X who devoted themselves to the life of the mind while they were in prison, while they had presumably right. little else to do. As it happens, a lot of us spent the last few months in something like prison during the coronavirus <laughs> quarantine. And from what I've seen people saying online, most of them haven't devoted themselves to contemplation, even though they intended to. Uh, why do you think that is? And is it a failure on their part, as I know many of them feel it to be a failure? Uh, well, this was something that was haunting me, you know, 
at, in in my own uh, situation, which was having a book come out in the middle of Quarantine, um, a book about the value of contemplation and solitude and silence. So seeming like the book for the moment that somehow doesn't work because it's actually impossible to concentrate in quarantine. Uh, so I did some thinking about that. Uh, and one of the things I think is going on in my own case, at least, at least the beginning. Now, actually, I think I am settling into something like uh, a, a more contemplative mode. Uh, at least sometimes I can get it, latch onto it. Uh, but at the beginning, it, I, it was quite frightening. Uh, you know, you get this, um, you know, this terrible disease. It's everywhere. Uh, you can't see it. Uh, it can kill you or it can kill your parents or your, your grandparents uh, or your, your elderly friend. Uh, you don't know how bad the collapse is going to be. You don't know what's going to be left standing. Literally every institution that's not a tech company is under some kind of dire threat. Um, and I think it's very hard to concentrate in the context of that anxiety. I, so I think that one of the things I've speculated about about the prisoners is that they had to get to a point where they accepted that this was their reality and they were gonna have to make the best of it. And you can't force that moment, uh, the moment of surrender when you realize, okay, like this isn't gonna change tomorrow. I'm not gonna suddenly be able to go to parties and go back to work tomorrow. Uh, I'm gonna be stuck here. So how, what am I gonna do with it? How am I gonna live like that? That's I think the moment where you can begin really contemplating, thinking, pondering, uh, getting through your library, uh, working out some math proofs, if that's what you do, um, bird watching. It's the moment of surrender. Uh, I think that's part of it. I have another thought. This is my second thought. That was my first thought when I first started thinking about this. My second thought was that the other thing that makes it difficult is actually um, there's something unsettling about being surrounded by uh, suffering that you know was there, but you don't really know that much about, you know, which I think the case for a lot of us middle class people. You know, so I know, for instance, that in my town, um, there's a lot of demand at food banks. That means people are hungry. I don't know the hungry people, uh, but I know they're out there. I know that there are people who don't have jobs. I know the people who don't have enough food. I know that there are people who are getting sick because they have to work. And I think that that too creates some anxiety. That is, if their duties, this is part of our contemporary life in the U.S., I think, you know, it's it's not made easy for us to connect with the needs of the people in our communities. We have to really get out there. We have to volunteer. We have to find organizations that are helping. It's not going to jump out at you. Uh, so I think that that for me was also part of my difficulty concentrating was, was uh, knowing that probably I had some duty to be out there in the community doing something and I wasn't doing it because I didn't, you know, I, I wanted, I was too, wanted to stay home and wallow in my own anxiety and misery. Um, so I don't know, that's, those are my thoughts. I don't know what you think, um, but uh, that's why I speculate about why it's so hard to concentrate in quarantine. Mm -hmm. I, I really like that first explanation. Uh, not that I disagree with the second one, but I, it, it got me thinking maybe Americans are just too hopeful. To, to, to do that, you, you know, I mean, because what you're describing is a sort of despair. 
And Americans aren't good at despair. We're really good at false hope. Like putting our hopes in the wrong things, but we're not good at despair. You know, if uh, if you ever have any encounter with the 12-step movement, which I have a bit, um, I think that's actually not true. I think the truth is Americans kind of invented surrender <laughs> through the 12 steps. So, so you know, it's, so I think it's it's part of a structure of a, any kind of compulsive behavior, whether it's being an alcoholic or overeating or internet addiction or anything. Uh, you you bottom out. You get to a point where you can't do it anymore, and and that's the moment of grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know. I know what you mean. That is, uh, Americans by stereotype are sort of can-do people. They're like, I can, I can fix this. <laughs> like, look, I'm going to solve this coronavirus thing if I, you know, sew enough masks, it'll be over. Uh-huh. Or if I, you know, if I do this and that and the other thing, or if I buy a face shield, if I buy all the right equipment, I'll be safe. Um, but uh, well, we can do it. You know, we can surrender. We can face up to to what's really going to be possible. I think most of us probably already have to some extent. Uh, I know I've done a fair amount of surrendering in the past few months, uh, you know, having to accept the things that I had planned or that I wanted to be the case were not going to be quite how I imagined them. Uh, I, th- I think we're, I think most of us are in that situation, aren't we? Aren't we? No? Am I being helpful? I'm... I mean, I work from home, so other than not seeing anybody, uh, my, my life didn't change that much. I didn't have any more time for contemplation than I did before. Uh, which I mean is a is a blessing in some ways, right? Because um, you know it's it means that my livelihood continued more or less intact, and and but uh, I, I I did find myself kind of envious of these people who suddenly, especially the people who were still getting paid, who didn't have to work all day. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I'm sure if I had been them, I would have been envious of the people who could continue to work. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think. I think everyone was envy. I think there's been a lot of mutual envying going on, right? Like, so, you know, I live by myself, so I envy the people that are stuck home with their kids. People stuck home with their kids envy people that are stuck by themselves. Sure. You know, it, it's, it, it's, I think it's just tough all around, and you always think it would be better if you were someone else. Well, I have uh, been steering this conversation so far, but here on Christian Humanist Profiles in the Spirit of Hospitality, we like to let our guests have the last word. What haven't we talked about so far that you'd like our listeners to know? I guess the thing I'd like listeners to know is something that surprised me um, when I was started doing this kind of writing. Um, when I, five years ago, I wrote an essay about why learning mattered for its own sake. And it felt like something you weren't allowed to say. You know, if you are an academic, you were supposed to say, oh, this will make you money. Oh, this will be good for society. This will be. You know. um, and uh, I, it felt like a lonely thing. Uh, it felt like treasuring the useless was a lonely thing. And um, what I'm finding out by writing about it is that, uh, you know, I hear from people all the time, all over the place with whom uh, the, these ideals resonate and who and who want this or have this already as a part of their lives. So I guess I would want people to know if, if, they're, if these kinds of ideals are appealing to you, there are other people out there. Um, and, uh, you know, don't be discouraged because, uh, you know, we, we should be able to build uh, enough communities who care about this kind of stuff with, with uh with the people that are out there 
Um, so just, you know, just be strong, uh, have hope. Things will get better. I'll, I'll tell you, this book came along at really exactly the right time in my life. Because like I, like I said, I left academia last year and I've, I've been just kind of uh, just kind of struggling with, you know, who I am, how I'm going to continue to do this. And, and man, um, you said some things in here that I, uh, I really needed to hear and I, I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's, of course, exactly the kind of thing that I want. You know, it's, it's just the kind of experience I want a reader to have. So thank you so much for saying that. I, and with that in mind, I'd like to, if you don't mind, I'd like to read this passage. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever done this on the show before, but I, uh, this, this, this passage really hit me, and I want our listeners to hear it. Uh, you're talking about Albert Einstein working in the patent office and, and how, how much of his thinking he gets done working this crappy job in this anonymous place. Natural as the little plant may be, the seclusion of Einstein's patent office is not chosen as Mary's is, you're talking about the Virgin Mary, but presented to him as a place of failure. While he saw the job in the patent office as a saving grace after months of struggling to feed himself, it is evident from his continued attempts to secure an academic position that it was not the first choice of the job hunting graduate student hungry for approval. For those of us without the strength of the insight to choose for ourselves such quiet withdrawn places, failure is perhaps the best trod route to inwardness. And I, uh, I, I really appreciate you writing that, and I hope it's true. <laughs> I think it is true. I wouldn't have written it if it, come on, it's got to be true. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure talking to you. We've been talking to Zena Hitz. Her latest book is Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. That book is available now from Princeton University Press. You can find a link to purchase it on our website, christianhumanist.org. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening. <laughs>